Welcome, welcome, guys. We are back for another episode of The Lock-In. We are joined by a very special guest this week. He's a bit of an online poker OG, Sunday Million winner. He's also got some live stripes. He's won the LA Poker Classic. He has final tabled a WCOOP main back in the day. A fantastic writer, a retired podcaster, a former Poker Stars pro. Welcome, Shane Shaniak Schlager. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So great to have you, Shane. Uh, you have a little story about uh, your own podcasting career uh, or maybe another podcast idea maybe that you were thinking of. Well, actually, let, let me, let, well, uh, yes, but let me tease. Actually, I'm, I'm actually going to be launching something like a podcast pretty soon Ooh. Uh, for the cannabis consumer. It's going to be a cannabis uh, weed related podcast. But yeah, once upon a time, I, uh, my friend uh, David Rowan and I, who used to play on Poker Stars as Hydro 420, we were going to do uh, a podcast about podcasts and call it "We Can Edit That Out" because uh, <laughs> uh, everyone on every podcast, there's always a moment where like the guest will be like, "Oh, should I say this?" and the the the, the host will always be like, "Don't worry, we can edit that out." But <laughs> before this, you told me we can't edit anything out, so I'm going to watch what I say. Yeah, we can't we can't edit stuff out here, or or if we do have to, it's very expensive. So please like, don't don't cost us money. <laughs> expensive how? You have to bring in like a special teams unit to do the editing? Or? Exactly. We have to hire special people who can work with video. I only know how to do audio. <laughs> okay. Well, look, before we get to some topics that maybe has uh, more crossover between all of us, it would be remiss of me not to mention a little bit of Chip Race Run Good. Uh, who would have believed it on the last show? What, two weeks ago, Jack Hardcastle charmed us, of course, with his funny stories and his uh, tepid attempts to uh, give out about people in the UK poker community. Well, he's got even more reason to uh, lord it over us all now, Dara, doesn't he? Yeah, Jack took down WPT Montreal, which, like every other live event at the moment, took place online. Um, Difficult to know what the exact... (laughs) description of geographical places these things actually means, but... uh, yeah, huge score for Jack. I believe it was over 400. Is that right? I'm, I'm actually losing count now of all Jack's scores. Or I so. know, he got 280k only a few weeks ago and he cashed for 448k. Uh, that was the first prize on a final table that included Ray and Chamas, Dan Shack, and of course Upeshka de Silva, who seems to be making a habit of coming ninth on these high profile final tables um as you said dara it was the montreal wpt uh, jack did tweet i'm so good i managed to win the wpt montreal without leaving my house <laughs> yeah yeah when jack was going deep he sent me a message uh, saying can i just play can i just play for 400k every two weeks please uh, <laughs> he's on a pretty sick run at the moment he's one of the people who's definitely benefited the most from the pandemic because he's more uh, he's more comfortable let's say online than than live so it's 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 been good for him that all these events have moved online um well and- uh not to interject but uh they did run a live wpt in florida my guy ronnie barda cashed for like 600k who chopped it up There's oh nice little super spreader event there in florida that's pretty much all old people that's nice to hear <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, like i wonder like, does america realize there's a pandemic going on at the moment <laughs> I'll tell you, I mean, I don't know if we're diving right into this, but it's my only comment is that it's bizarre that, you know, in certain cities, uh, first of all, it's different from county to county out here, even in California, Hmm. in terms of the way people approach these regulations. Uh, In San Francisco, everyone, for whatever reason, is wearing masks outside on wide open streets. Um, In Orange County, you'll hardly find anyone wearing wearing a mask except in a store 
And then, you know, so it's like, I doubt the people in San Francisco walking around with masks on realize that there's people playing a poker tournament, at, you know, in Florida or in valleys. You know, it's, like, it's just very interesting to me, the sort of uh, non-overlapping realities that are taking place. Interesting is such a lovely non-political word. We'll just stick with interesting, I think. For this <laughs> it's a go-to. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm sure Ronnie Barr is not mad. He he won $600,000 by showing up in person. So just, just to correct the idea that all the WPTs are taking place online, you know, and to give big ups to Ronnie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, fair play, fair play. Well, look, we want to cover a couple of these uh, grudge match challenges, Galfond, what a legend he is. Three for three now in challenges after Chance bowed out last week. Uh, five months, 25k hands, 730k to the good. Um, another Galfon challenge in the books. Dara, are there enough superlatives for Phil Galfon at this point? No, it's incredible. I mean, if you remember how far behind he was at one point in his first challenge and everybody was uh, writing him off as sort of over the hill, his he can't, he can't hack it in the solver age and so on. Um Obviously, neither of us are PLO experts, but from listening to PLO experts, um, for example, yesterday on the Dean Eggs poke stream, uh, somebody was talking about how at the start, Phil was genuinely rusty and he was making a lot of mistakes, um, but his game just shaped up really, really fast. And he's he's now absolutely crushing it. Um, it's uh, it's a remarkable turnaround. It just shows like when you have that kind of poker brain, once you apply yourself, um, what's possible. It's great to see because there's always a question mark, let's say, over people like him who reach the top and then sort of step back to do other stuff. The people who come afterwards often tend to dismiss them saying, well, they operated in an easier period. But essentially, he's like the heavyweight champ who's basically come back and now he's, and now he's knocking out uh, all, taking on all comers. Yeah, it is just so impressive. I have to say, it's also impressive what a tremendous ambassador he is for the game and, and never really fails in, in that role. Doug said on his stream last night that uh, when thinking about who would be the perfect person to arbitrate his match with Daniel, the sort of referee, if you like, he thought, well, I'm. it's weird, kind of weird, actually, when you think about it, but he's choosing his biggest business competitor because obviously run at once would be the main challenger to upswings domination of that uh, training space. Yeah. Yeah. Although see the other way around run at once was obviously there first and upswing sort of came on the scene, but yeah, I mean, it's a real, uh, I mean, Phil is universally loved. There's nobody who doesn't like Phil Galfond and apparently he was streaming yesterday when the, uh, the shenanigans kicked off between Dean eggs and poke and poke sent him a, a, a DM asking him to arbitrate. And because he was streaming, he didn't get it. So poke literally went into his Twitch stream and started badgering him, <laughs> saying, check your DMS. We need you. We need you fast. <laughs> he, he, He's a, he's a man of many, many hats, and uh, he wears all of those hats very well. Have you been following but these did, challenges, Shane? Well, I'll tell you, I, you know, I was, and then it's like when actual life comes up and you start having to do things, and you're not just like sitting in front of a computer following other people's high-stake matches. Actual I, life, what's my, that? What's, that? <laughs> what's actual life? I forget actual I think you still have that in America, David. <laughs> No, no, not necessarily. It's just something that got thrust on me in the last month. And uh, I just didn't have the opportunity to keep up on it. Um, but I, I do, I take an interest and I take an interest, let's put it that way. But has, uh, I'm curious, has Galfond lost any of his challenges yet? No. no. Three for that's three insane. so far. Yeah. And he was that's, so far, I mean, that's. He was so far behind in the first one, Venny Vidi, that he, people had more or less written him off and saying he was going to quit. No, that. That, that one I, I saw pretty much start to finish. And then he's had like three or four since then. 
And I was kind of like, I mean, I was keeping track of the one he had against Chance, uh, but then it felt like it got upstaged by the Negrano Polk thing. And I just, it kind of fell off the radar a little bit. I don't know. I mean, my thing is, I can't imagine playing for those kind of stakes when you have like um, newborn children. Mm. <laughs> like, I give nothing but respect to all the poker players raising kids. It's just, uh, that's something I'm not going to be doing um, with poker or money or otherwise. Um, but so I've been briefly keeping track what needed to be arbitrated. Like, I, Okay, so so I'm going I'm going to give the full story. So it, it sort of all leads up to the point that Dara mentioned there. I, I am going to back up a couple of weeks because there's been a bit of a roller coaster. It's fair to say, um, Doug had been up about a million. Daniel sort of pulled it back over the course of about a week to get it to about six fifty k. Doug then had a huge session. I actually got to commentate on that one. He won about three hundred and something k and got it back over the milli mark. That was a really fun stream because it was Doug tweeting a lot. He was showing his bluffs. He was sort of um, you know, doing little dances when he crossed a million mark and sending them out on social media. So for the lulls, as, as Doug likes to say, uh, it was very good entertainment. It's got to be said at the interview, the post-match interview, right after that one, Daniel was really dejected and sort of cowed and was kind of a very diminutive, beaten down figure, I have to say. But he put his big boy pants on the next day or maybe two days later and put together the biggest session of that challenge so far, 400K plus. And that really got him back in the mix, um, sort of took a big chunk out of uh, Doug's winning, sort of put Doug in a spot where he couldn't coast anymore. And, and he was actually within reach again, hypothetically. So, you know, definitely uncomfortable for Doug with the results that on the very next session that they played a few days later, Doug started limping, which obviously had uh, a couple of reasons behind it. One, it was a, a strategy he was keeping in his back pocket. I think something he'd been working on as a way to carve out a little bit of extra EV. It's obviously also got the added benefit for him of in the context of a challenge and the sort of ICM that is created by a challenge like that. When you have side action, um, it, it lowers variance and, and makes it much more difficult for Daniel to catch him actually on that Dara because there is a sort of a weird ICM in play here I thought maybe you could explain that better than I just did uh, and the impact it has upon that challenge yeah we talked about this yesterday and I speculated that this was probably the primary reason for um for Doug deciding to do it which is just to lower variance when you have a lead of 600k um you want to lower variance to the point that even if you run really badly your downswing will be less than the 600k so you end up winning the challenge and therefore winning all the side bets so it makes perfect sense to try and lower your variance in any way and as all tournament players know one of the ways you lower variance is to exercise pot control from the start so you limp more you your bet sizes in general are, are smaller um and yeah it's essentially it's, it, it is exactly icm it's interesting to see icm applied to this which is a pure cash game challenge but because of the side action and the side action is significant um it's really important that doug uh maximizes his, his, his or, or minimize the chance that dns can land a lucky punch as it were um and you know another 400k session for example and and dns will be right back in the mix so limping makes perfect sense in the in, in from that perspective um reducing your variance can i ask oh. a question i guess this was confusing me too because i thought it was just mostly a straight challenge unlike um the Galfon stuff, which had these side bets built in, this is, I mean, I didn't realize like, you know, any, any win in this Negrano Quote challenge uh, 
mattered so much. I thought, you know, Doug was just trying to completely just maximize dollar EV all the way down. That's so what you said. The, 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 the side bets are external. So Daniel and Doug don't have side action, but they both have side action with other people. Okay, so it's, I mean, Doug is still self-interested in, in winning. Like, if he wins by $10, it's still really good. It's still really good. Huge, yeah. And, and, and also his friends, I believe a lot of his friends have side action. And the, the side action, I mean, we probably shouldn't say an exact amount. We've, we, we, there's been speculation, but it's extremely significant. So, like, it's far more important that he, he locked that up than, say, win an extra one or 200,000 um, from the Granu. Uh, by 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 playing a different sh- strategy, so it's it's extremely important to him and his circle that he that he he retained the lead. And he he was very, I mean, Doug is always very honest about this. He talked about it last night in his post match interview. He said um, that he had to play in such a way that even if he runs in the bottom five or ten percent of universes, um, he, because of variance reduction, it it wouldn't wipe out his earlier wins. He also said that he essentially he's trying to like. There are, there are only about five or 6,000 hands from the end now. So if he maintains his lead, let's say, over the next two to 3,000 hands, there is no way in the ground who can get back in the last 3,000 hands. And then the, the handcuffs come off again and he can play normally. Um, but at the moment, he's kind of at, at that inflection point where he's aware that with 6,000 hands left, if he ran insanely badly, which is always possible, uh, Galfon ran insanely badly at the start of his challenge with Vinny Vidi, um, uh, uh, so therefore, he he he's um, essentially trying to take those three thousand hands out and and, and lower the variance. Um, I think the other reason he did it, um, and I think it's also a very good reason, is just to throw a spanner in the works. Um, Negreanu was not very good at heads up when they started. Uh, it's fair to say, but he has improved immeasurably, and he's actually playing very well now. Um, so. Pokes edge over him is nothing like it was at the start, but Daniel, as as is very clear from some of his post match interviews, Daniel is is a kind of a monkey see monkey do learner rather than a learn, learn from fundamentals. So 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 Daniel has essentially um, assimilated now this strategy uh, based on the way Doug has been playing so far. So by Doug switching it up and switching to a completely different strategy, Daniel now has to go back to the drawing board and learn a completely new strategy. Um, can, and, can I, can, yeah, sorry, I, I mean, I project a, some some kind of defense for Negreanu here. Just to bring it back to what you said about Phil Galfon. Uh, I mean, just before uh, I agree, I co-sign the monkey see, monkey do uh, observation. <laughs> you know, let's say for all intents and purposes, Negreanu has been um, a really great poker player his whole career, or my, you know, the entire time I've been. Um, you know, it's funny actually. I have a friend who. <laughs> It's still the greatest point of pride in his poker career is like he beat Negrano heads up in like some $500 tournament at the Taj Mahal, in like, you know, 2002. Um, but I mean, look, to go back to Galfon, and my theory is more like there is something intangible about really good poker players um, that's greater, you know, it's, it's greater than the, the, the current trend in the game. Like I've always said that about, let's say, JC Tran in tournaments. Like he might not be the best technical player but there's something he brings to his game that's like a presence of mind that he's really making a lot of like good or you know adjusting really well to the table or making good decisions that he, he's never going to be considered let's say uh, a Jason Kuhn but he I, I do believe JC Tran will, is, is, a, is a sort of player who will always like put up results 
Um, and Negrano is like a very good player who actually understands poker theory quite well. Um, you know, and he might not be on the cutting edge of the game today by the standards that, you know, Doug was that when they started, but you know, I, I, I think it's fair to say there's some combination of Daniel doing the monkey see monkey do thing and also incorporating that with some really raw poker talent. Um, oh, there's, there's no doubt he has he, he 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 has massive poker talent and uh, and Doug even acknowledged this last night. Doug, or, or or actually, well, I think Negrano said Doug had not had acknowledged it, which is that Negrano has this sort of natural uh, poker talent. Let's say you put him in his spot, he plays a certain number of hands, and he intuitively will work out a very good strategy. Whereas Doug doesn't really have that. Doug Doug, by his own accounts, is a product of the lab. He didn't have any real natural well, poker I mean, talent. Which I will say. Given that dynamic, to me, it is and was insane that Negrano took on this challenge. I mean, I don't understand, like, yeah. the, the the publicity EV versus, like, his just raw negative, you know, it's just taking on the best person in his chosen format is just, it's pretty ballsy, I guess, but pretty insane, too. I don't quite understand it still. Yeah, no, I, I, think it's, I think it's really important to give Daniel his dues on this stuff. Like it might be a bad business decision or maybe in the bigger picture things, it's a very good business decision because it keeps him in the limelight during lockdown where he can't be playing live poker. His sponsors maybe are quite happy about this and it's part and parcel of their contact, their content output. Um, so there could be a kind of a myriad of reasons there. Uh, but, but, but yeah, you have to take your hat off to exactly what Dara said a moment ago and has been reiterated by Doug a few times now, which is that Daniel has improved tremendously fast and is obviously really taking his study seriously now and has got good. But that's what makes it interesting for me that um, he was still vulnerable to the idea that this limping strategy in his mind, his initial reaction was, oh, this is just bad. You're giving up EV now to me to lower variance. He couldn't um, understand that it was possible to construct balance ranges with a limping strategy. And, and that was something that Doug was aware of. It's something that people like Dominic Nietzsche have talked about a lot over the years. It's something that the very best players, uh, Linus, Berry, all these guys incorporate and do a little bit. They don't play exclusively that way, but they do mix it in and they, they mix it in at times where they feel like it's, it's particularly advantageous. So that was interesting. And, and, and Daniel kind of went straight away. Oh, you're, you're no good. And then Venny Vidi actually tweeted at him, which I thought this was kind of cool, bringing the whole conversation full circle to some degree. He said, uh, Doug is about lowering variance and allowing yourself to limp will add EV to his pre-flop strategy. I'm curious to see how well you'll respond to the new strategy. And overall, I'm very impressed by how you've gotten better at heads up, no limit in such a short space of time. So I, again, I think Daniel is kind of getting maybe feedback right after his initial interview of like, actually, you're not making sense here. This is a legitimate strategy. This is actually good poker from Doug. And you have to maybe twist the narrative again. You can't be saying like it's Grandpa Doug, you know, being cowardly and and limping in. It actually has more merit, and and I think he, you know, obviously his coaches at least explained that to him since. We've seen some famous limping strategies at like the the World Series final table. Bill like Collins was the uh, first was the first famous one. Yeah, the, the, was the, that? First, year of, the, yeah. the first year of the first year of November nine. Uh, Phil Collins, who hadn't limped in his entire career that, up to that that's point, what I was uh, went away and came back with Olympic strategy, which completely uh, threw everybody at that final table. Yeah. Hmm. Although I remember at the time someone. Go ahead. No, no, you you finish your point there, Shane. No, I, 
See, I, re I remember I remember him coming out with that limping strategy and it sort of being shocking or whatever to people or surprising. And then someone claiming that he had had that limping strategy all along online or I thought maybe Ruthless had claimed that. I don't know. But it, it was memorable. It's possible. So, it, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, possi it's, it's possible online. It was it, it was certainly new live. Um, uh, right. Because, and you know, you know who played a really sick limping strategy and not just at final tables. I mean, really what, like Berkey, when I played with him many, many years ago at a World Series event. I mean, he played uh, what I considered at the time completely unique style to to everyone else in the field. He was like limping a large percentage of hands and just and just taking it from there. Do you remember an online guy called the Battler? Do yes. well, I remember him very well. He was absolutely insane. Like he, he Fullering, he used to V pip north of eighty percent, um, <laughs> but 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 it was pretty much all limps. Um, and he had the limp re-raise, the limp re-shove, every, every, every bag in the arsenal. He was by far the hardest reg to play against, in my opinion. Really um, was. I, I don't remember him playing against him specifically, but I remember when I played with Berkey that time in the live game, I was just like really impressed and like, you know, frustrated, like confounded. It, it, like, it, it's just like generically um, a frustrating strategy when you've been when you're just used to this sort of like raised three bet, four bet dynamic, and like yeah. now someone is like completely changing the rhythm of the mm. game with limps. Um, and right, I, I don't know if that's directly pertinent to what we're talking about, but. Well, before we get back to it, I do remember the battler showing up at an Irish Open circa 2011. And to be fair, Dara, yourself, myself, and I think John O'Croop might have been the only people in the room who knew who he was, and we were fanboying over him. You were absolutely the same fanboy. Yeah, he, he had such an incredibly unique style. I believe he went, subsequently, he got a bracelet. And um, um, Is I'm he not, no longer battling? I'm not sure. I haven't seen him in recent years, so... Uh, yeah, he was, he, and talking to him as well, really funny because he was, he was obviously one of these like great intuitive geniuses because he would say like, I can't really explain what I do um, or why it seems to work, but it does work. Uh, <laughs> uh, like he, yeah, he was the original, but he used to do a lot of stuff that people thought was just mental. But actually now when you, in the era of the solvers, you can see it's perfect. Like he was the guy who would limp pocket eights under the gun. And then when somebody raised him behind, he'd reshove and everybody would go like, what the hell is this? Like people don't do this right. with anything other than aces or kings. Um, but, but yeah, it's, I it, mean, that's, it, this is a good way to still to parse this, this topic of like solving versus just playing beastly. I, you know, I think there's some, it converges there. Like there, there's people who just play that great intuitive style. I think that winds up, doing enough stuff similar to the solver or maybe that's even you know that they're onto something before people have run those sims um you know i just know like i think we talked about it last time but i know guys who have never opened a solver and they i think play pretty well uh, against solver heavy players yeah for sure uh, yeah like there's a, there's a lot of people and i i coach some guys who have never used a solver but when you ask them a spot and they tell you what they think and then you look at the solver output it it matches very well so they kind of have a good intuitive sense but the first the first game i really loved uh, in my life is chess and i've only ever beaten a chess grandmaster once and it was nothing to write home about because it was a simultaneous display which means he had to play 30 people at the same time but i kind of realized at the age of 20 or 21 whatever it was that if i just play my standard opening um you know Roy Lopez as white or the Sicilian as black, he's going to run over me because he has such a huge advantage over me uh, in that stuff. So 
I deliberately chose an opening that nobody ever plays uh, called Grobs. It's a horrendous opening from a theoretical point of view, and therefore you never see it at the top level. But the good thing about Grobs is, first of all, you never see it at the top level, so he had no preparation in it. And the second thing is, some of the most obvious or immediately obvious counter moves are actually bad. There, there, there are some fairly well-disguised traps in the opening. Um, so if he if you just do the obvious looking move, you're often making a mistake. And because, uh, I thought, well, he's playing 29 other people at the same time, so he's not going to have very much time to think about this. Um, and I think Dominic, uh, we mentioned Dominic earlier. Dominic does a kind of a similar thing in poker where he uses weird sizings um, just to throw people away from what they're used to. Like everybody knows how to defend against the min rays now. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody knows how to defend against the 33% C bet, et cetera. So you, Do- Dominic is the guy you'll see 3.5 Xing off the 14 big blind stack. And he's still folding some of the time uh, when he's shoved on. Um, mm-hmm. But he's put in the work to know how how to balance those ranges. It might be very slightly less EV than the the, the standard sizings, but he's he's kind of counting on uh, people playing badly against it. Yeah, and I think that's what's so fascinating as well is when you take your uh, villain down to a, a part of the game tree they're not used to being in, and there's all sorts of new opportunities for exploitation. I do want to bring us kind of catch us up to the present, if you like, because we're almost there where you said, Dara, of, of, of last night's session. Um, Doug obviously uh, went to battle with Daniel last night and, and Daniel having proclaimed that Doug could, quote, not beat him with the limping style. He called Doug a grandma. He said that Doug was toothless. He said that he was cowering. Daniel took the unexpected approach to come back for the next session and stall every hand for 20 seconds every street so that he can buy himself more time to learn the counter strategy which is obviously something he discovered is actually quite complicated and something worth learning wait so i, I was confused about this because like so i caught wind of this like wow i was like literally driving on you know like five hours and I'm, I'm reading twitter occasionally when i stop and he chose to stall i mean i saw dan smith befuddled that he would you know, trash the watchability of this. So you're saying like he would take those extra 20 seconds to try to think about things more clearly because he's not using any kind of... No, essentially what he was doing was he was trying to minimize the number of hands that would be played because they're playing for two two to two and a half hours. So Uh, if if he's max stalling every decision, they're only going to play 30 or 40 hands in those two to two and a half hours. can't he declare, can't they say, let's take a two day break? And he or that's built in that they have to play a certain number of sessions per week. No. Well, that's the bit that I couldn't understand because I kind of thought, well, like, why not just call Doug and call in a sick day or something? I'm sure Doug would yeah. be like, yeah, okay. And that would have bought him the whole weekend to do a bit more study or whatever he wanted. But in the end, he he, he sort of decided he was going to do this. And, and I think he had multiple reasons for it. One, I think he was now working off new charts. So he has his opening ranges on an iPad. He's studying them. He's now got I new thought you could, I, thought they, wait, they, I thought they couldn't use charts. I know Daniel backed on that one. He, he loves charts now. He wants charts. As many, yeah. more, more, more charts are better. Um, yeah, I, think it, I think his coach okay. has explained <laughs> that it was going to be more to, to his advantage as the, as the less experienced heads of player um, to be able to refer what, to charts. When was that decided? At the, at the beginning? <laughs> right right after he complained about it. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that complaint lasted about two days, I think. And then he backtracked and was like, okay, yeah, charts are great, actually. I love charts. Um, but 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 no. So so he's studying these charts. He's obviously got his two point four x charts for when they're deeper. He's got his 
2.2x charts for when they're starting stacks. And now he's got his limping charts for when Luke decides to limp button. So he's trying to figure out what he's meant to do. And, he, and he's legitimately maybe able to make an argument that it takes him 20 seconds to scan through all that stuff because it's not stuff that he knows wrote like he might have almost wrote the, the, the other ranges. Um, the part that didn't make any sense, and in fairness, it's what Galfon spotted immediately when he was called in for arbitration, was he was also taking this time on the button when he was first act and he was first in and he was pretty much raising 100%. So that didn't make any sense. These 20 seconds seemed to be utterly egregious. And after Doug sort of had a bit of a fucking fit over it and was really pissed off and went into almost every stream on the internet that was covering the match, um, he basically convinced Galfon, or no, sorry, Galfon, I, I'm sure being the arbiter independently came to this place where he said, well, how about you speed up on the button? And if you need to take your 20 seconds, you know, in response to Doug's limbs, fair enough, uh, which well, Daniel reluctantly so, said, okay. So sorry. Doug, Doug requested some intervention or some arbitration. Yeah. yeah. He yeah, felt like he was reaching etiquette to the point of angle shooting or to the point of kind of like, yes, it's within the rules, but it's really dirty. And it's also kind of implied within it is like, if you continue doing the limping strategy, I'm going to continue doing the stalling strategy. And Doug hates poker and wants this challenge over in two weeks. And I suppose the idea would be then, well, this could actually take like two months instead. Gotcha. So how many, I mean, uh, so how long did the stalling uh, episode last? It's about half an hour, Daryl, would it have been? No, I think it was about an hour. I felt like it was about an hour. And I do think Daniel had a couple of different reasons. I mean, I think the reason of having new charts is definitely legitimate. And, you know, he made the point in his post-match interview that even when he has an obvious decision uh, and he knows what the answer is, he still has to take 20 seconds because he can't convey to Poke that he has a hand, which is obvious. Um, when, he, when he has these other spots where he's taking 20 right. seconds to find the right part of the iPad... Uh, he he also did quite quite an amusing demonstration of like what he called old man Negran who fit, messing around with all this technology being very confused. I mean he's only forty six, uh, so it's a little bit thin. Just... Is he still in his recliner? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know I mean forty six. No, he should. Actually... Desk, I think forty six is actually young. Uh, yeah. I don't know how old you guys are, but. You know Barry Greenstein claims that a poker player comes into his prime in his forties. On, uh, on one of his marathon uh, Joe Ingram podcasts, like there's two four-hour podcasts with Barry Greenstein, which is actually completely worth listening to. I listened to one on the drive out to the World Series one year. But Don't Barry, be doing other people's podcasts on this show, for fuck's sake. Yeah, okay. We said we weren't going to edit anything out, but that's definitely <laughs> getting edited out. But it's a community, guys. It's it's symbiotic. <laughs> uh, uh, the rising tide, all, all ships rise. Sure, yeah. Um, but but Barry did, you know. I, I, I'm I'm going with the um with the philosophy that a poker player comes into his prime in his 40s. So I don't want to. We can't. We cannot give Daniel the old man pass. There's hope um, for me yet, Dara. I'm not 40 yet. Are you not? Wow, that's uh, <laughs> fuck that's you! Funny. I can't believe you. What an oh, such an own goal. Why did I say that? <laughs> yeah, but but to return to Daniel's motivation, I, I I also think. I mean, Daniel. One of Daniel's great skills is he kind of understands people's psychology really well, and he really realized that this would really get under Doug's skin. Uh, and I mean, <laughs> Doug pretty much proved that. I mean, I used to play with a guy uh, live, and you you actually run into a few of these guys. They play insanely slow, and part of the reasoning is just annoys everybody, and people make mistakes when they're annoyed. Um, uh, you know, Will, Will Kasu, for example, is an incredibly slow player, even when he's not stalling, uh, which is <laughs> per, 
not very often, but but like I watched his heads up match, for example, uh, big tournament he took it down online recently, and it's the slowest heads up match I've ever seen because he was taking a minute on almost every decision. Um, and I think part of it is just to annoy people. It gets people out of thing. People used to playing at a certain flow, and if you play really really slow, that annoys them. Um, and so I think that was part of it. And also it was just like it was it was kind of a fuck you to him. And well, now you've made me learn this new strategy, and I'm going to have to go off and and learn that. So I'm I'm. I'm, I'm going to mess things up for you too, buddy. Um. <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of the whole thing in a nutshell. It, it does annoy, you know, like that, that strategy would work against me. Like it, it would make me play worse. Um, maybe that's something to think about the next time I encounter such a player and just, just to work on my breathing or whatever. Um, you know, so it's a sort of like, it's a, it is a time honored thing in, in gambling and poker, this sort of like Amarillo slim type of manipulation or just, you know, meta game, head game bullshit. Um, yeah, then I, I, I get, so I don't know. I'm, I'm torn between thinking it's sort of fair play on Daniel's part in this case, because Doug, I mean, basically Doug spent three to five years getting under Daniel's skin to the point where he got Daniel, he induced Daniel to agree to the worst heads up situation ever. <laughs> and I think, you know, whatever Daniel uses to counter that at this stage in the game is probably fair. Um, mm-hmm. And let you know, and look, everyone having a tantrum all day on, on Twitter is, is good for it's good for the, the game. It's good for the community. So I'm indifferent. I feel like I, I, I just need to issue a little PSA, a little public service announcement there, because you mentioned Will Kasuf and his tanking and his stalling. And if you are playing him live, I would recommend that you, uh, even if he is getting on, under your skin, don't look away. You know, if you've got chips in front of you, definitely don't look away. That's the most <laughs> important thing. Um, look, <laughs> finally, I just want to... Little nugget of hypocrisy here because I, I couldn't help but do a little bit of research when Daniel started the tanking business because I remembered a video where he was calling clock on somebody on the final table, last two tables, and I yes. remembered a blog he wrote. So I dug out the blog, and in the blog, he was going at Jordan Christos, who had kind of become the face of egregious tanking at the time. And he said, In the future, when I call the clock on you repeatedly, this is him talking to Christos, it isn't personal, I'm just doing what's best for me. The other players at the table, the poker community, the broadcast, the fans, and ultimately you. So Daniel Negreanu, one of the biggest and most vocal anti-egregious stalling people in the world, decided that, you know, stalling finally okay, had a time out, though. for him. Time <laughs> That's, it's unfair to a degree because this is a heads up challenge and it's his challenge and he can do whatever the hell he wants. Um, Whereas in a multi-table tournament, you are sort of affecting the whole, you're affecting the vibe of the whole tournament. And that's, that can be a detriment to recreational players enjoying it. And that's a problem for the game. So now I'm not taking it out on Jordan Christos, who, by the way, probably experiments with untraditional open sizes, even more than Dominic Nietzsche. He's like the guy that tanks for 30 <laughs> seconds, like, and then go, and then like raises 20 X under the gun or whatever. I, you know, he's known for doing crazy things. Um, in other words, I'm trying to advocate for Daniel against your uh, unrelenting disgust for him by saying this is not relevant to his hypocrisy on the tanking issue. That's all. Go on. The, the, the only thing I would say... community you know, in a broadcast and some fans watching. So some of those things are still there. Sure, yeah. The only thing I would say is that, uh, that, that that hour when that tanking was going on was excruciating to watch. So I don't think... You didn't have to watch it, though. Sorry? I was in, you know, I was in Santa Cruz having pizza. Like It didn't bother me at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, w- 
a, a lot of the way this challenge was sold was well this is a way of sort of getting interest in in in, in poker again and it has done a very good job in that a lot of recreational players are really exercised by this but um i mean uh, the idea that negrano being a pain in the ass like for one session uh undermines the value that this has to the community is you know that's not true uh, in fact, this is, look, it's generated 20 minutes of discussion already. Or however, we've been here a while. Um, I think, every, you know, basically they're doing a good job with the showmanship. Like they're somehow creating this actual like tension. That, and, yeah, yeah I, uh, I, I think that's irrefutable to be honest. It's it's a soap opera and we're all enjoying it. We're all talking about it. So you, you're, yeah, you're and especially well considering how little impact this has on, on our lives, for like on my life. This is like two guys who have a ton of money, obviously, to gamble. Gambling for steak, but I've never gambled for it. Okay, but it's okay, right? That's great. I mean, and, and I have a couple of friends who might have side bets, and I want them to win. Uh, you know, so it has a minor, a minor personal impact for some people, but it's no. I'm, I'm paying credit to both of them, like in a way, like or, or even to Daniel. I mean, Daniel is essentially taking the worst of it for a big uh, moment in poker publicity, and and, this, and that's cool, you know. Uh, and Doug is, I mean, Doug is really just like finally seeing the end game of this four-year needling campaign or whatever it is, however long it's been since that the, the billboard and the shirt. And, and, you know, and Negrano has felt like bullied by, by, by Doug. You know, even though I, I don't think Doug is a bullying presence. I think he's it's more, he's more of a humor, humor driven kind of guy, but he's, you know, he's, he's a ball buster. And, I don't know. It's just, this is all good. Like this is all, I'm, it, it's pretty amazing that it actually wound up in like an actual battle for a lot of money. It really just, is. And, and I think that's the one thing we can all agree on and maybe draw a line under it there is that it's excellent popcorn TV. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it really yeah. is. I mean, we, we mentioned that the, the Galfon challenge kind of got overshadowed once this started and it, it's the old thing in boxing that people much rather watch a villain than, uh, than a squeaky clean hero. People, People are not so much rooting for poke or Dean eggs as against poke or Dean eggs, depending on which side of the divide they're on. Um, and that's a really strong motivator. Um, and the, the level of comments you see, you can see people are really emotionally invested in this uh, on one side or the other. Um, and that's, that's, and uh, I mean, they're almost a perfect couple in the sense that Daniel is always throwing stuff out there and bending narratives and throwing new narratives out. And Doug has, Doug is very good at responding to this humorously. So, it's yeah, it's, it's it's been excellent entertainment to watch. Yeah, fair play. I mean, you know, Doug had to invest in a t shirt, in a billboard. This was a multi year thing to induce <laughs> this action. Yeah. <laughs> Years in the making. Well, look, we come now to yeah, unfortunately something that keeps cropping up in our industry. We sort of say how we would like to not shine too much of a light on these kinds of stories, but it is also important that we do pay attention to these stories when they crop up. There has been another multi-accounting scandal. Winamax Pro, so quite high profile, Ivan Dera, won the 2K Super High Roller at the recent Winamax series for €83,000. The only problem was he was playing on his dad's account, which, you know, for anyone out there who doesn't know, that's not allowed. That's not okay. Um, in the face of overwhelming evidence, I believe Dara confessed pretty quickly his contract with Winamax obviously terminated. And he released a public statement saying that his punishment was, and I quote, heavy, very heavy, but also logical. Very and understandable. 
Um, I don't know if anything has been lost in translation here. He went on, how could I have been so naive or oblivious? For days and nights now that follow, I am searching within myself to dig into the reasons for this unforgivable and serious act. He laughably suggested, actually, that it was a, an innocent decision to try out a new screen name uh, because he felt like he'd been losing on Winamax for quite a while. And maybe it was because he didn't get to change his alias once in a while. Um, doesn't really I mean, explain playing the same tournament a second time, Ivan. I hate to kind of point to something obvious there. Dara, on the spectrum of cheating, how bad is multi-accounting? I mean, it's it's... It's it's a bit, I mean there's different types of multi accounting as well. Like if you're playing two accounts at the same time uh, on the same table, that's obviously a lot different from entering the same tournament twice. Um, now, or but I mean it's not even multi accounting if you're playing even if you even if you'd only played on his dad's account and he hadn't played on his own account, it would still be wrong because people would assume they're playing against his dad uh, with his dad's stats rather than than this baller. This is always an issue. Um, online obviously and it plays right back into the idea that recreational players have that they get cheated all the time online uh i have to say though this is why i love the french like even when there's an even when they're embroiled in a scandal the way they express themselves <laughs> is so wonderfully innovative it, it reminded me of Cantona that time when he talked about seagulls following trawlers and in response <laughs> to him kicking a fan in the crowd um it was uh, the, 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 yeah prop, prop, props to ivan what he did is is pretty wrong uh, it's at the lower level of it's at the at the less serious end of cheating, but the, but the way but the statements he put out were were um, yeah very uh, entertaining. Well, I mean, do you want uh, my my two cents on this? Sure, definitely. Um, I mean, that's more just like a a case study in like obliviousness and just like it doesn't seem a it, it, if if we're gonna take this sort of apology at face value, it, it sounds like it wasn't malicious, but like. Naive isn't the right word either. It's like it's like a benign form of being unethical, but also just like it, it's so impossible to imagine a professional poker player operating under that set of assumptions that he claimed and somehow not thinking it through. It's like, I mean, I, like part of his statement did bring truth. Like he really does have to think like, how could I be so dumb? Like he really has to think about that and like, <laughs> Like the, the ethical breach is almost like a product of his being dumb, not necessarily of ill intent. Um, you know, and yeah, look, I was thinking of the, like literally one time I multi-accounted. I mean, I'll come out with this because it was back when it was, it, it was. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realize we were about to make news here. Go on, please continue. No, it's not news. I mean, I'll tell you, it's, you know, it lasted like three hands. Um, you know, it was back when, before the Z Justin, the big Z Justin scandal broke out, there was a glitch. You know, there was an exploit that that was getting passed around where you could open two instances of party poker and play two different accounts easily. So I did that in like one tournament. I opened up a second window, and whether I had busted already or just decided to enter a different account, it immediately just felt like ugh, like wrong, and you know, it wasn't something I was going to pursue. Um, and this was before it became apparent that a lot of people were using that bug and G Justin became the most famous sort of uh, perpetrator of that. So, I mean, I, I guess where I'm going with this is, you know, I feel like I am an ethical player and, and just like, just like the Rex, the Rex, I am, I feel like I'm probably getting cheated here and there. Um, but 
I don't know. I don't have too much like patience, I guess, for people who are like, oh, I had no idea that this was wrong. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I'll, I'll just confess that the one time I, I flirted with that, I knew immediately it was wrong and I never attempted to do that again. So I'm, I'm glad to see that your reaction was ugh and uh, and multi-counting didn't become your drug of choice. That's that, that, that's good. Um, it, it's no, I mean, yeah, it's, I, I just, yeah, you know, I, a more interesting question was like someone was like, if you were given the super, if you wound up with a super user account on UB, would you, would you have used it? You know, and and I, at the time, I told my friend, I don't think I would have. I think I, again, I would have felt just too yucky. But you know, I don't know. It's it's actually more. It's like if you're given that opportunity, handed it, do you like do do you choose the the egregiously wrong thing to do, or do you do you actually have principles? I don't. You know, there's no way to know until you're confronted with these actual circumstances That's sorry if take. i derailed us there no not at all that was a good, fantastic take and actually i want to get more of your takes here and i actually want to come more to some subjects close to your heart because you tweeted recently find something you love and you'll never work a day in your life but they forget to mention it might take 20 plus years to figure out what you truly love you are as you mentioned a, a little while ago 40 now or maybe you're over 40 i'm not sure i was wondering how much poker sort of still brightly burns for you or has that maybe changed maybe in the short term it sometimes burns stronger and then in the long term it fizzles out sometimes too yes to all of it but i'll you know i'll say this i guess since i left um poker stars in 2013 um should we wait for dara to get by but um since I left Poker Stars in 2013, I've been looking for a way to fit poker in my, in my life. That's let's call it a plus EV hobby, uh, something other than a profession or necessity to make money. And again, I've been so that's like now coming on seven and a half, eight years, where I've been looking for this balance. And there's times when I feel like you know I I want to be playing poker the rest of my life, and I want to play with like a reasonable positive expectation and keep my game sharp. And then there's part of me that like, you know, sort of Marty math has helped define for me where I could never play poker again and be okay with it. I remember having this conversation with Marty uh, at the last world series we played together it was a millionaire maker event, let's say three or four years ago. And he was just like, no matter what I would, um, I would never stop playing, you know, poker, like no matter how wealthy, no matter how this, and he's proven that basically completely. He had like, he, First of all, no matter how many scores he has or no matter how, how much wealth he has built, it seems like he's still that same, like, the grinder I knew from post-Black Friday. It was like in Cabo just playing 18 tables all day or whatever, and he's still just got that raw passion. And for me, it's like, it's almost like, um, you know, if you paid me my perceived equity in the main event of the World Series, I could never play the main event of the World Series again. I would just show up and take people out to dinner. Uh, and that would be fine. It's not like I like it. So in a way, I lack that that raw thing where it's like I want to beat the game or master the game or like the game itself is so important. Like, no, I like more of the social aspects and the sort of like unconventional, like mental freedom you get from playing poker for money. Um, but, yeah, that's I mean, it's a, it's a question I wrestle with whether, you know. And whether, you know, I have to, I feel like I do have to bring enough passion and enough interest to it to play that plus EV part-time poker. 
Well, when you were on the show um, before, that's you, the... You, you did mention that one of the things that you, you sort of found difficult, and, and I guess this is, this makes sense because you've you've been you know hot for poker and cold for poker at different points, is that to really get really good, you have to be all consumed in the game. You have to be in the lab. You have to be studying. You have to be playing loads. Uh, to really stay sharp, it's like a muscle. I, I know that myself. There are times where I'm very much making content for a few weeks and I can feel my game, you know, dulling. And then, you know, there are times where I get a, a nice run of a month of online poker and I, no question within, by the second week, I'm feeling much better. So, that, you know, that's undoubtedly a thing, even for someone like me. And I think you're a bit more like me maybe than you are like Darren in this respect, where you do want to get into those other things or maybe you're maybe you're more likely to have second thoughts about poker altogether i'm not sure well yeah i mean well okay so it's this is just also the ongoing debate i mean dara like when you get done with a 10-hour poker session are you hitting the books are you doing calculations that night on on what you did wrong and what you could do better the next time oh we I don't have your mic that. dara we don't have your mic sorry uh, yeah, I think central to this whole uh, thing is that um, what your motivation is, basically. And like you mentioned that you enjoy the whole social thing around poker. That's true for a lot of people. A lot of people are in it just for the glory. And then, you know, if they get the big score, they're done because they they, they got that glory. A lot of people, for a lot of people, it's just money um, or or whatever. For me, the, the main motivation has always been just sort of the interest in the game itself, trying to work out the strategy. And this has been true not just with poker, but every other game that I've played. The, the strategy is incredibly interesting to me. And that's what gets me excited. When I, I don't get upset when I lose a flip. I don't get upset when I bust a tournament. Um, I, I, I don't get excited when I win a flip. Uh, it's, uh, and, uh, and the results don't really impress me that much either. What's far more interesting to me is when I have a spot where I'm not sure what to do, and then I can go off and actually run it afterwards and see exactly what to do. That's... That's where I get the most pleasure from poker, learning something new um, and 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 seeing it. And, so I, and yeah, I think there's no yeah, sorry. There's no question that's the sort of ideal approach, right? Um, now the question is like, and I've heard I heard Doug Doug say at the end of one at the post game interview of one of these streams that like it's it's as simple as if you're not spending your time running these sims over and over again, you're kidding yourself that you might be improving. Now, if I believe that exactly, I would have to stop playing basically because my thing is this basically. Um, I find that when I study like, okay, so if I play a 10 hour session, I'm, I'm, there's no way I'm hitting the lab afterward I'm, or any session. It's like I'm vegging out somehow or another. Um, I'm trying to decompress from the day. Um, but I found that when I, I, I pay any attention to studying, and that might be just saving hand histories and doing a hand history review, um, it does improve my game. Or like it, it, the next time I'll play, I'll be playing better or more aware or more in the moment. And I'll be also incorporating new minor strategic things. Now that's far, far from being like in the lab and really like getting this pattern recognition down. So the question for me or that I ask myself is like, is the amount of, you know, so-called work, because that really has always been my weak suit, is, has been doing the work and the study. It's not the most interesting thing to me at all. The question is, am I doing enough to, to stay, like, afloat in the game? It doesn't, you know, I'm not trying to be the very best necessarily. I, but I want to have, I want to be in a position 
to make runs and hit scores and, and play every hand very well. And that's just the open question for me is, am I doing enough work to accomplish that? Or am I kidding myself as Doug would suggest? Um, and yeah, that's so, well, you know, it remains to be seen. Well, yeah, I, I, say, I, I really empathize with what you're saying there. Cause that's very much the way I think as well. Like I, I'd love to have these other interests and I'd love for other things that I'm good at to take off and maybe become careers or, or, or that type of thing too. So I'm always a bit sort of like one toe out the door, if that makes sense. I always think of Dara as somebody who has had loads of different interests throughout his life, but every time he has one, I think you'll agree with this, Dara. I think it's something you actually said to me once is that you're just all in for that thing. You just completely immerse yourself in that one game or that one pastime or that one obsession and then maybe just one day you wake up and go, oh, I don't care about this anymore, or I peaked at this, or it no longer interests me, and then you move on to the next one. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the point of departure from all of my uh, obsessions has always been when I feel that I've gone as far as I can go, not in terms of results, but just in terms of what I can learn or, or, or do. Like, I reached a point in chess where I realized even if I study this for 20 hours a day for the rest of my life, I'm not going to get much better at this, and I'm not going to learn so is, is poker the culmination of all your interests and that you feel you're going to stick with this? Or, I mean, this has been your profession for decades now, yeah? 12, uh, 13 years. Um, I, like, I started much later than most people. I started at the age of 42. But, yeah, I think poker is perfect because it's such a big game. I'll never reach... I can't imagine I'll ever reach that point where, you know, I'll play a session and I won't have a spot afterwards and going like, I'm really not sure what I should do there. Um in fact, in the early days of poker, it was actually frustrating to me because, you know, if you had a strange spot or a weird spot, all you could really do was ask your friends, ask the best poker players you knew. Um, and you'd ask five people and you'd get five different answers. And then you had to decide who who you believed the most. But there was no sort of provability. Now I feel that the solver is almost like the friend who proves to you uh, what the result is. So you put in the inputs, you say, I think these are the ranges. I think these are the... Um, strategic options what's the best one and the solver actually with mathematical certainty comes back and says this is best and and right. and you can totally believe that so once the once the solver era arrived um it actually invigorate reinvigorated my game because i felt i actually have somebody i can ask now that i trust that that, that will so always I, give me the right answer i think that's a major category of like you know we're talking about the different things that interest people and it turns out that the academic, the academic end of this is something that really interests a lot of people. And I mean, it's just to imagine like how big of a segment of the market is like, uh, or the, you know, the poker professional market is coaching. It, it would really be mind blowing to the generation of 20 plus years ago. Like there's, there's no, this is a, a tangential thought, but to imagine that like Doyle Brunson would have like taken time out of his like gambling career to, to go like set up a, a, a gambling training academy, it's just you know completely absurd. But now the best and, and most respected players in the game do exactly that. Can you guys give me one minute and chop it up while I go? Yeah, no, you, you, you go you go take a, 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 a comfort break there. That's no problem, Dara. I have a question for you anyway. Yeah. Um, so like a little bit of what we're talking about here, and this is another topic I do want to get Shane to weigh in when he gets back, is sort of poker's poker players have this obsession we're seeing it quite a lot right now actually of making money money becomes this kind of like singular focus and it's obviously impossible to disconnect poker from money because that's like the tools of the trade so i get that but there is something about maybe being a bit more academic like the way you are or just being more at ease or content 
with making some money, making an okay money, but not being aspirationally trying to make all the money, do all the crypto, do all the investment stuff um, and, and, and accumulate all the money and still be happy. I suppose happiness is the question I want to ask you about. Yeah, I think in poker, like money is many things in poker. It's it's the tool of the trade. If you if you run out of money, well, particularly in the days before staking, if you run out of money, you're out of the game. So that was uh, that 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 was part of money. M- money is the tool of the trade. Money is also the scoreboard. Um, as soon as you win something, people the first question people ask is how much did you get for that. Um, so it's that if you if you call our area sport, money is very much the scoreboard for that. But if money is just your pure motivation, it gets harder because, you know, one of two things will happen. You'll either make so much money that you don't need to make money anymore and now your motivation is gone or uh, the game will get tougher and, you, and you'll find something else that you make more money at and you'll go off and do that. So I think the people who are attracted by money um, tend, you know, they, they tend to drop out of the game after a while. One of the things, and Shane touched on this earlier, was people who have kids and family, like, Poker players, you know, they, there was this old thing about you, you have to go bust to uh, earn your spurs as a poker player. Um, I never really had that luxury. Um, I started at a time where I already had, you know, the wife and three kids and they were and I was their sole provider. So I never had the luxury of being able to go bust. Now, people have accused me of being a little bit too cautious uh, in, in terms of not taking shots at the big stuff. But, you know, it would have been very, very um, irresponsible of me to take those shots and risk actually going bust and then not, not I mean, being able to support know, my family anymore. Direct, I heard the last, that directly to that. I mean, that is like um, an antiquated uh, and irrelevant idea that I still hear some old school players like bring up. Like, I, you know, I hear players who, use, let's say, more like used to play the game. They'll be like, well, you know, it's just like, uh, it's just like a known thing that every poker player is going to go bust. Like that, that is true for me, like personally. And that was true for some of the people I was coming up with. Like when I was coming up in like 04, 05, there was still a lot of that, like just raw degeneracy, like where, you know, like, like a little bit of that glamour and degeneracy where you, you know, it was 2005, 2006 and you had money at, uh, you know, in a, a world series event that like you were going to hit the Baccarat table. That's, <laughs> yeah, but the true, you know, that's that that mode of, of existing was rapidly going out the window, even in 2005, 2006. And, you yeah. know, the best the best sort of friend of mine, best professional gambler friend of mine, who I'm always referencing is it was Jesse Martin, who, uh, you know, I think, you know, way before he had kids, but he had the vision of what kind of life he wanted to build for himself. I think when he had a $30,000 bankroll, he had almost zero risk of, of ruin. Like he, he saw the big picture and he, he did, he, he wasn't, he, he would take shots. Like, you know, he might put up the incorrect percentage of his bankroll technically in a 10K, but it was a very calculated shot. He knew he could go grind uh, 10, 20 limit or two, four, no limit or whatever he, became and you know i could you know i think that that was the model that was quickly making the rest of the most degenerates very like like instantly irrelevant um so right i think you know with dara like dara is obviously a, a great example too of yeah he, of the irrelevant you know that's that's just like it's no longer a relevant notion right Pope yeah and i think we were we were sort of kind might have to go bust 
<laughs> I think we were sort of kindred spirits on that stuff as well, because when when we first met, like I th- like it, it's well documented, Dara built up his role and his poker empire from literally zero, it literally free rolls spun all the way up. And I probably lost about maybe 1500 bucks in poker before I started winning money. And when I started as a professional, I was profitable 62 of my first 63 months. So I was playing super low variance, sit and go style, building it up slowly. Because in a very similar way to Dara, although I was younger, I was straight out of college. I didn't have any money in the bank, really a little bit. And I did feel like, oh, if I do this, this is the alternative to a more normal career. And I have to prove that I don't go broke. Like going broke for me wouldn't have been the be all and end all because maybe I would have had people I could borrow off. Maybe I could have just gone and got a job. I worked in a restaurant back then. So maybe I could have worked some shift, built up a role that way and then gone back. So there, there were obviously options there. But for me, it would have not been possible because had I gone broke at any point in the first at least two and a half years, that would have been everyone around me going, what the fuck are you doing with your life, you idiot? Well, so, so that represents, you, you guys had a good foundation for it then. That was, you know, uh, not, that wasn't me. Um, <laughs> and, and there really is, there really is a, there really is a thing that all the players like Dara who, sort of like took their first $50 deposit, you know, the Jonathan Littles, it's like, I put in 50 bucks and the next thing I knew I was cashing out 300 K. Um, th- those people just, I think were designed for the professional level of this game better. And, and some of us have had to learn those skills the hard way and rip through money. And I think for me, I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time just living in a sort of fantasy land. Um, chasing short-term freedom. And I remember Jesse even saying, you know, this is about long-term freedom. This is about stability. And it really, like he, you know, again, Jesse Martin, he gave me the, the roadmap and the blueprint. And I just didn't have the sort of discipline at the time or the maturity to follow it. Um, so I'm just, you know, I'm aware of what my limitations were, what my setbacks were. Um, and it's an attitudinal thing. And it's 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 also just sort of like what, what your background is and what your work ethic is or what, you know, and, and I just indulged in the fantasy of just like winning satellites and chasing going around the world, not really working too hard on my game ever, trying try to play good, and enjoying being in Monte Carlo, being in San Remo. Fucking that was the life. Like, it was, you know, but right now I don't have any money. So, you know, and Jesse's got like a ranch. <laughs> well, well, blessed are the peacemakers. You're trying to find uh, balance in our arguments with uh, Daniel Legrano. You're, you're now comparing us to Jonathan Little and, and saying that we're cut from the same cloth. So I don't know what more you could really be doing as a guest now to try and uh, repair all the, the, the broken relationship we have in the book. Oh, I, I didn't know you had a history with Jonathan Little. That wasn't intentional. <laughs> don't worry. Don't I, worry. I like everyone. Like, I, you know, I got. Although we did forget to mention Jonathan Little in the context of that, um, that the 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 Ivan uh, uh, cheating scandal, because that's that's what that reminded me of, which was sacrifice, also sacrificing your sponsorship equity. Yeah, it's like you know, it's like stealing from your employer is essentially like the dumbest thing you could ever do because you're yeah. screwing up all your future possibilities at that place of employment and your references, and you know. And again, I don't think, you know, when we're talking about, I'm referring to the time when Jonathan Little was hired as a full tilt poker pro. And is this okay to discuss? Please continue. And famously, uh, I don't know. 
whatever he basically enlisted a factory of people to play a bunch of sit and go so he could get rigged back way in excess the you know which, which at the time the main takeaway and i think it still is because i don't think he's an unethical or amoral person is that he lost his mind like to to those full tilt deals were so insane. You were basically printing money just to be a break-even player. And then to feel like you had to scale that by like getting people to play while you were asleep or whatever the hell it was, was just so insane. And it's, it's almost like hilariously insane the more I think about it now. Um, that it correlates to the, you know, it correlates to that. It's it, it, the, like, the accidental ethical blindness. So maybe it is naivety. It's like, oh, I just thought it might make sense to completely betray my corporate sponsor and risk my sponsorship. <laughs> well, we're really grateful for that call back to uh, uh, 13 or 14 years ago in poker. Uh, <laughs> we, really, we really appreciate we, I'm sure we'll get no emails about that one, Dara. That'll probably just be fine. I can't yeah, imagine yeah, that causing any trouble. Water, water under the bridge. It's not, it's, it, it, it's not uh, like it's going well, to I, I'm not familiar enough with the culture. Of, oh, you've, of, just, uh, you've, you've just thrown a grenade into our lives. It's fine, Shane. It's fine. Whatever. Whatever. Well, maybe you can hire that good that that high priced editing team if yeah we're gonna to have to make an ev calculation now which is which, which is going to cost us less to take take that out or to uh to to, to face the thing yeah i mean that i mean i think it's a really good point on just how stupid poker players are on these stuff like so many guys have lost their deals by virtue of doing something against their employer like it's just insane i mean i worked in different industries before and like you'd occasionally see one of these people and everybody would go like what an absolute idiot but it just keeps happening in poker um i don't know what's wrong with poker players i guess we're we have a very blinkered tunnel vision view of ev and it's like well i'm making this much playing eight hours a day if i could play 24 hours a day 365 days a year i'd be making even more how can i make that happen rather than thinking maybe people will notice that i'm grinding sit and goes while sleeping and also while being on a tv feature table um it's 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 almost like an an inability to see the big picture um and yeah it's pretty remarkable so but we do keep seeing but, people in poker i mean dare but again and I, I i will keep it you know like it's, jonathan little has proven himself to be a very like smart guy and another guy who's he's raised kids off of his poker money so it's like that to me is is the ultimate respect or tribute that but he's proven himself to be a thoughtful person i think i don't know what you got i don't i have no idea yeah, and saying. to be fair to be fair to jonathan he was very young at the time and like a lot of us yeah it's, uh, so it's one of those few industries where people can actually be, be at the top uh at an age when they're usually just the entry-level clerk in every other industry um yeah and it's also unique where it gives people you know people in this industry are given unique opportunities to to fuck up to, to screw up you know whether it's money look and beyond the, the screwing up sponsorship deals i'm sure you guys can think of like literally hundreds of instances of poker players making mistakes doing like with other people's money like doing things that were unethical for or you know wrong for various reasons, but well, that don't just, necessarily just, just, just to draw character. Just to draw a line on this one because because I, I, I'm petrified of uh, legal retribution. Uh, I just want to clarify one point. As far as I'm aware, Jonathan Little has one kid, not kids, and that wasn't you suggesting, nor was it this show endorsing the notion that Jonathan perhaps has secret children somewhere that uh, that he's not aware. I just want to make absolutely clear. It's very important to make clear everything. I think with this man, 
again, I'm lost in this conversation to some degree, but I think he's got two kids and um, I don't know. I mean, maybe by the end of this, you guys will be big Jonathan Little fans because it doesn't seem like that's the case right now. Well, we conclude every episode since the new year with a Dara O'Kearney strategy tidbit. Dara, would you like to end the show in some strategic style for us? Yeah, well, we've touched on this. The, the thing I love about Poke is trying to figure out strategy. So I, anytime there's a new variant that comes along, I'm usually one of the first people into it, um, trying to work out the strategy from uh, first principles. The latest new variant on the scene is the uh, the GG flip and goes, which are similar to the old full tilt flip outs, if people remember those, and very few people do at this stage. Um, but the idea is that you buy a certain number of chips between one to 10 stacks at the start, and then you're on, you put on a table where there are differing, di- differing stacks and everybody's forced all in until somebody has all the chips on the table, and then they're in the money and it plays as a normal tournament. So that's the that that's the first twist they put on it the fact that you can uh, have to buy different numbers of stacks the second twist is uh instead of everybody just being dealt two cards and it being run everybody's dealt three cards and they have to do a discard so pineapple style pineapple. and everybody can see each other's cards so they can see what cards are missing so th- this introduces an, an, an almost stud element to it of like how many of my how many of my outs are out there um so this is the new format and I put far more time than is probably should have into trying to work out the strategy. I'm, I'm, I'm going to start with two tidbits. First of all, there's a debate going on. Should you buy one stack, which is clearly better from an ICM perspective, or should you buy 10 stacks? It still hasn't been definitively proven either way, but my very strong hunch at this moment is that 10 stacks is better. More stacks is better, which is perhaps... Um, uh, good because uh, Daniel is their main ambassador. Um, more stacks is better for the simple reason there's a hand bonus. If you hit a straight, a three-card straight, a three-card flush, trips, or um, a straight flush, you get a bonus. And that's in relation to you, how many chips you bought in, not how many chips you have at that point. So at every point in the flip, you're getting a fairly significant jump in equity by having more chips um so yeah that's uh, again i might change my mind on this initially i thought uh one stack would be better for icm reasons but i do think the hand bonus thing trumps that so if you're playing these flip and goes i think the best i'm pretty sure the best thing to do is to buy 10 stacks wait what's the hand bonus thing? i missed the the hand bonus basically you're dealt three random cards and if they're in right. sequence uh it, so a three card straight in other words five six seven uh you get um a bonus of whatever amount of chips you bought um, ah, your stack so essentially like doubles if you hit a three card flush you get uh, a 2x bonus if you hit trips you know 777 seven, you get so a, that's, a three they're actually bonus. adding an element of three card poker like three card poker is a casino game that has sort of those just yeah like, yeah it's very it, but it, it's more like but for example across, so three card poker pineapple uh, the, the, the full tilt thing you mentioned were those the you got a hundred chips and it was like five ten to start? No, what they were was were literally just everybody. Uh, it, it was a tournament, but everybody was forced all in every hand until the money, and then it played as a normal tournament. Uh, I didn't remember something like that, but I thought it was just like a hundred chip thing that you still had the option of folding. No, you Maybe had no option to fold in the in, in the original full okay. flip outs. Um, so the, the, there was literally no skill in the flip out portion, um, which is probably Wait, why is, the format didn't survive. This is, this is much different than uh, spinning go, right? Yeah. 
yeah, this because it plays as a normal tournament once uh, once the initial phase is over, and and there is a, also a skill component at the start. The skill component so, is deciding how many stacks to buy and deciding which card to discard. So I had another. If, if I could ask another question about that, if uh, is it better to um, is another advantage to buying biggest stack that you're well, you're you can't you can't lose the first hand to any smaller stack first of all you're correct only... correct so it's 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 much more likely you're going to get to a second flip and because there's right. a hand bonus on that second flip that right. that essentially adds a serious amount to your equity i i i believe the bonus is worth roughly 15% of your buy in so if you buy 10 stacks you're guaranteed obviously the first flip as everybody is um so that's 15% but most of the time you'll get to a second flip as well and that that adds another 15% in expectation and you know you may make you often it takes four or five flips for somebody to to amass all the chips so if you're in five flips um yeah. you have five potential chances to win the hand bonus so it's possible the person buying in for for the single stack is at a huge disadvantage it is possible, yeah, yeah. I, I, also, another thing I didn't realize initially was that um, I thought, well, you know, I ran some ICM sims, which proved that if you were on a table with more chips, you were at a disadvantage because when you got to the cash phase, yes, you had more chips, but you had paid more for those chips essentially, or the table had paid more and they were worth less per chip. But what I didn't know <laughs> and what, what Gigi didn't particularly publicize was that they balanced the tables. So every table has roughly the same amount of chips. So if you're on a, if you buy a 10k stack, you'll be one of the, maybe the only 10k stack, maybe there'll be two 10k stacks per table, but you'll be one of them. Uh, and if you buy a 1k stack, you'll always face the same number of 10k stacks. So that sort of mitigates the ICM. Great stuff. Well, no better man than Daryl Carney to go back to first principles and start figuring out a new game once it's been invented. Speaking of new games, or at least newish games, Daryl, we're going to finish off by just saying the Unibet um, Winter PKO series is in full swing at the moment. And on Sunday, we have our main event. It's just a 100 euro buy-in. So it's very attainable for anybody. There's lots of satellites, big satellite tree all the way from probably a euro, I'm guessing. So you can easily get into that one. I'm expecting quite a big turnout for this one. I think we might get three four hundred people uh dara how's that series been going for you and what do you think of the idea of us having this dedicated pko series with a pko leaderboard where it's actually all about the, the knockouts and not about where you finish i think it's a brilliant idea i think i think the leaderboard really adds an extra dimension um and there's you know apart from the prizes you can win there's also a free roll that you can get into if you uh, get more than 30 knockouts so that's making people chase knockouts the whole joy of pkos is that it encourages a gamby style rather than say satellites which encourages people to fold absolutely everything <laughs> the series have been an absolutely massive success um and it's interesting because unibet was one of the few sites where less people were playing pkos than on, on other sites but this has really sort of ignited the the, the player pool on unibet um, and they've, they've, they've fully gotten into PKOs now, and I think we're going to see that will continue even after the series. Um, you may have noticed I'm occasionally dancing down on my screen because I've committed to playing the entire series, and the latest event has already started. And David, I've noticed you glancing down too, so I suspect you might be playing as well at the same time. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a huge success, and I. I I think the idea to have a leaderboard based not on how you finished in the tournaments, but on knockouts was a great idea. 
Yeah, it's a great idea. And it is, as you say, Dara, absolutely exploding. We are giving away loads of your books. I don't know how many, but I think there was an order of almost 150 books. PKO Poker Strategy by Dara O'Kearney and Barry Carter being given away to people who get lots of knockouts, to people who don't get enough knockouts. I don't know how we're doing it, but there are a shitload of books being given away this week. Dara O'Kearney, thank you as always. Shane Chaniak Schlager, you've been an absolute legend here with us today. It's so interesting to get your thoughts on all these topics and of course spend a little bit of time just like mulling life really I suppose as we did in the last half hour well thank you thanks for saying so and really thanks a lot for having me it was nice really fun talking to you guys got me laughing a couple times got some good stuff out there I hope well you probably got us sued so thanks for that Dara O'Carney thank you so much we will see you next time (laughs) bye thanks Shane all right thanks guys